Hello and welcome to the Hearst Demystifying Media podcast. I'm Seth Lewis, the Shirley Pape Chair in Emerging Media and Director of Journalism at the University of Oregon, sitting in today for Damian Radcliffe, who's sick, um, and so I'll be covering this latest podcast. Today we're going to be exploring um, the online news and particularly the question of dark participation as we dive into the societal as well as individual and attitudinal changes connected to digital media. To help us discuss this, I'm joined in the studio today by Dr. Torsten Quant, Professor and Chair of Online Communication at the University of Münster in Germany. Uh, Torsten is currently a visiting scholar at the University of British Columbia, and he's previously been at University of California at Santa Barbara, Oxford Internet Institute, and Stanford University, among other places. Uh, he has more than 150 papers to his name covering topics such as disinformation, dark participation on social media, and online gaming, and his work has been cited more than 11,000 times by fellow academics. He is the recipient of numerous awards and grants, including being nominated twice to the top list of the 40 most significant young scientists in Germany by the National Trade Journal Capital. Torsten, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, great to be here. So your Hearst Demystifying Media lecture last night was entitled From Participation to Dark Participation, Online News Between Hope and Hate. Uh, if people hadn't had a chance to catch this talk, I, I wonder if you might summarize for us some of the key points or some of the things you were thinking, uh, particularly as you developed uh, such a provocative title. Mm. Yeah, well, part of it is um, kind of a reflection about my own career and uh, the things that happened in the last 20 years in journalism research and journalism. Um, because when we started um, in the you know beginning of the 2000s, uh, at the end of the 90s, um, we all hoped that online communication would be the savior. It would save journalism in a way, you know, that people could participate in journalism and everybody was super hopeful. And uh, this has changed over the last 20 years, uh, and nowadays people are talking about all these evil and problematic things online. And um, yeah, so it was this journey that actually motivated me, you know, to give that um, provocative title to the presentation. You know, uh, telling the story of that type of change we have in the field, but also in academia. And you talked a bit about how it was a sort of personal journey for you as well. I mean, you came into journalism research at a moment when not many others were actually studying online communication, which it sounds um, sort of odd now to our ears in 2022. But at that time, in the late 90s, early 2000s, it was seen as this uh, very new frontier. And in some ways, um, it was sort of open terrain for you to explore. Do you want to talk just a bit about kind of how you got into this line of work and then kind of where that, how that led to what you're doing now? Yeah, absolutely. That was uh, a time of exploration in a way, you know, because uh, at that time, online communication was really the new thing. Uh, a lot of people actually were thinking it's going away, um, you know, that people would continue to read their newspapers um, on Sunday morning, you know, and um, that they would uh, watch television, but online would be like uh, something that goes away in five years. And it's just, you know, this new thing that, you know, the, the young people use. Um, and obviously, there was a lot of, of uh, misinterpretation of what's happening there. And even online journalists weren't taken seriously at that time. And the same was true in a way for researchers doing that, which I thought is, is also an opportunity uh, because it was uh, a field where everything that you did was new in a way. You, you really could explore. You could go to online newsrooms. You were the first person that was ever there. Um, you could explore how people are working, how online's, online news are actually influencing people and, and how they actually use it. And there weren't, uh, you know, 
previous works on that in a way. So in a way, I, it, it really felt like an explorer to in a, on a new continent in a way. And that was super exciting, especially for young, uh, young scholars. Most of us that were doing that at that time were really um, a, a new, a young generation of people. The older people in the field, they were still into more serious things, you know, like like newspapers or so. And so one of the central concepts early on, and one that you developed along with some other kind of younger emerging scholars in uh, around 2008, 2007, was this idea of particip participatory journalism, right? This concept of participation. And of course, there's other terms like citizen journalism and others that around that time were being used to describe this um, relatively new and sort of uncertain phenomena regarding how people, um, everyday people, could contribute to the news uh, making process, could contribute photos, videos, could um, write stories, potentially, right, or somehow contribute to things. Um, can you talk a bit about kind of what was the, the what was the feeling then mm. about participation in journalism, and and how that has changed? I think that that's obviously a key part of as we get toward what is dark participation and what it means. Mm. I think it, you know that background is really really crucial aspect to that. Yeah, I think there were uh, a lot of expectations back then, and also it was really hopeful. Uh, you know, in, in the sense that um, online communication was like uh, um, um, you know you you projected a lot of things into it, and um, the hope was that it would save journalism, that it would save democracy in a way, um, because we had the feeling, you know, that a lot of the uh, institutionalized media were kind of detached from society, so um, they, they didn't speak with their communities anymore, and um, online communication was different, and, you know, that you could participate, you could be part of that conversation, um, and a lot of uh, online media, you know, had these forums, these open spaces where users could actually comment uh, or send in their photos and so on. And uh, so the hope was that this would be more um, of a debate or like a discussion uh, within society. And so really a deeply democratic uh, thing. Um, yeah, and we hoped uh, that this this would be um, not only saving journalism, but also democracies. And there were signs of that. If you look at it, um, there was like, um, you know, Arab Spring uh, in 2010-11, um, where everybody said, you know, this is the online revolution. This is um, the, the revolution of mobile media, of, of all these new technologies. And now people can actually exchange all these, these you know, ideas and the information. And this will lead to a, a wave of democratization uh, in the world. And uh, so it was not only a hope in, in journalism studies, but also in political communication and so on. Um, yeah, well, if you, we look at the situation now, uh, it was pretty naive, I think, uh, in hindsight. But uh, back then, um, it really felt good. You know, we we're, were saving democracy. That sounds great, right? <laughs> right. I, mean, I think that uh, one of the more striking things you talked about last night in, the, uh, in your talk was showing how when scholars were talking about these issues circa 2010, there were certain, or even before that too, right? They were using certain kinds of words uh, mm. to indicate sort of hope and hype associated with the potential um, kind of emancipatory potential of, of democratizing technologies. And then you compared that with some of the titles that we see in research work today. Can you talk a bit about kind of that contrast and that, yeah. that the tenor and tone of uh, discourse, both in academic discourse as well as kind of just public conversation about mm. the nature of technology and its societal impact, you know, circa 15, 20 years ago, as opposed to what we're seeing in the last five, six years. Mm. Yeah. So I, I think a lot of people were 
not only expecting uh, things to happen, they were really demanding these things to happen. And if you look in the literature, or if you have a look at the literature, there's like a concept, you know, like uh, participation to be the savior. There's a new age of online communication or people are saying, you know, everybody can be a journalist, like uh, uh, my dear friend John Hartley said uh, at one conference. And uh, so I think he had the concept of a communicative democracy, you know, where everybody's contributing. Um, and in a way, that's a very nice normative idea, um, but it doesn't take into account um, that not everybody's motivated to do that. So as academics, I think we were a bit too hopeful because we thought everybody's like us, you know, <laughs> that we want to uh, be democratic, we want to contribute something to society. But a lot of people, well, I mean, it's their it's their good right to, to stay at home, uh, drink a beer and well, don't give a damn about democracy, you know, it's, and just watch television. That's okay. But as uh, academics, I think we were expecting too much a bit. Yeah. Um, and uh, if you look at the situation nowadays, it's the total opposite of that. So that has changed in that course of 10 years. Uh, if you look at the words that are used nowadays, it's um, cyberspace war, uh, it's uh, incivility, it's hate communication and so on. So um, all these expectations that we had back then are kind of reversed nowadays. It's, yeah. it's actually, I, I sometimes I have the feeling that people are nowadays expecting the worst, you know? <laughs> and so that's 180 degrees change, I think. Yeah, I think one of the interesting kind of uh, potential implications here is that uh, you could look back and say, well, academics, as well as other observers, really got it wrong. Yeah. Um, and, and it's probably a good thing that we're not in the prediction business, because uh, clearly we, we're not so good. But um, and, and I do think that you know the wrongness of science, so to speak, in this particular instance, um, as in other instances, can be, you know, that certainly could be weaponized by bad faith actors who want mm. to point out the fallibility of these institutions and so forth. But I think it also suggests that um, it should lead to a certain degree of humility about Okay, you know what do we project forward from today that we may be getting wrong or mm. we may have overestimated? You know, has the pendulum swung too far in how we evaluate these kinds of things? I think that's an interesting question to to think about. But you know, when you discussed uh, dark participation, you sort of outlined some of its key components. So, if someone asked you, you know, what is what does this mean exactly? I think you've touched on some of these things already. But if you had to identify some particular forces and factors or dimensions that are really mm. important. What would you point to? So yeah, the concept of dark participation is basically a kind of a double-edged sword because it's, I used it in an article to show this, how problematic it is uh, to now expect the worst, you know, uh, and how we kind of change 180 degrees and that this changes also problematic in many ways. Um, so the article was used for that, but there's also a, a kind of a um, you know a model in there that a lot of people use. Uh, that was actually not the intent of the article, but um, it seems to be helpful to organize your thought on that. And uh, that model includes various components of, of dark participation. Uh, dark participation basically means that you misuse uh, you know the the options of participation against what it was intended for. Um, so there. Are actors out there that actually use online communication as a tool of for hybrid disinformation. Uh, so we've seen that or we see that at the moment uh, in Europe uh, with uh, the Ukraine, uh, what was a crisis, but now is a war. Um, and we also saw that uh, during the last few crises we had in during uh, the COVID crisis, we saw that a lot of actors actually use online communication to spread ideology. Um, 
and very often they do it um, you know not with their real name that's normal in, on the internet but very often they also pretend to be somebody else so there is a lot of um, proof that we have uh, for example actors from other countries trying to influence um, you know the public in democratic societies um, which is in, in Europe for example Russia um, and I think that's uh, one part of dark participation you know this type of strategic disinformation that you have but there are other forms of, of dark participation that are not strategic, um, like uh, trolling, which is also, you know, uh, the use of participation not for what it was built for, but for something else, you know, basically uh, to spread hate or to, to kind of um, be nasty to people or do something bad to them. Yeah, you talked last night about how there can be, you know, we, we can look at this as an individual phenomenon, certainly by just how people behave and treat mm -hmm. one another online. Um, but there's obviously systematic and structural and strategic kinds of endeavors that happen. And that's what your team has been studying uh, recently, has been looking at different disinformation campaigns and uh, the groups behind them. Can you talk a bit about you know, what, what are you seeing in the data, you know, and, and mm -hmm. how, do you, how do you come to certain conclusions about these things? And, yeah. You know, I think it's... Um, an interesting question right now about like, is this disinformation problem the crisis? Maybe we can talk more about this a little bit later, but is it the crisis that people perceive it to be? Or are there certain aspects of it that are more problematic or concerning than others? Hmm. But we could just start first by just talking about some of the cases and examples yeah. you've been studying. So yeah, we had several um bigger projects in Germany, especially, or in Europe, where we were looking at the, um, you know, at, at attacks on uh, basically the public uh, on social media. Um, um, so we had one project that was called PropStop, which is like a short version for propaganda stop that was actually looking at um, especially the elections in Germany 2017. And we were, um, for example, monitoring uh, Twitter and other social media channels. And what we could see there that there were groups that were interested in influencing the public and I they tried to do so. So there was uh, one case I was talking about yesterday in my presentation also um, um, where we had a group, right-wing group called Reconquista Gamma Monica that was trying to influence the public um, by basically, um, you know, pushing specific hashtags uh, during the, um, you know, election campaign and uh, this public debate between the candidates. Um, so um, that is one type of, you know, um, trying to influence the public that you actually choose one, an election or an event where you have um, probably, um, you know, a close election where you have two parties that are very close to each other. And then you might try to influence that last minute or while the campaign is still or is ongoing. Uh, and we've seen that not only in Germany, we've seen it, I think in France, there was a case as well uh, when, when there were um, allegations against Macron last minute. Um, and where it's always a bit strange, you know, when you look at it, where it comes from. In that case, uh, in Germany, with the Twitter campaign, uh, we actually knew about it. And, and we also know the group because uh, there were also journalists in that group. Um, so they know uh, it was a specific right-wing group that actually did that. But we could see it in the data beforehand. So we actually could see how um, Twitter basically was changing or, or the flow of information was changing. That is one case. The other one was uh, that we were looking at was uh, COVID and how uh, especially what we call alternative media were trying to um, yeah, give a different impression of what's happening in the country. Um, and um, yeah, we, w what we could see there is that the, 
the portrayal of democracy is always very negative. Um, and uh, so there's also, this is more like the long-term game, you know, in a way. They try to change the narrative about democracy and uh, uh, especially liberal democracies and how they work. And always the message is we're basically doomed. Democracy is not working and we need a new kind of political principle, which is often uh, what they propose, a leadership principle. Um, as a German, I have to say, uh, we have really bad experiences with that. So um, it's, it's uh, you know, something that I think we should be really uh, be careful um, and, and should monitor more because, again, very often the impression is this is the will of the people. It's, you know, um, it's an open democratic expression and people can publish anything, you know, it's, it's okay. But very often we get the impression, no, this is not just the normal people actually talking there, but it's people that are interested in influencing the public. And in many cases, we can actually identify these groups. Mm. Yeah, I think one of the big fallacies is the idea that social media somehow represents mm -hmm. uh, popular opinion, right? That you can somehow adequately sample uh, the interests of people by just looking at what they're tweeting mm -hmm. about or posting about online. Because, of course, most people are not on Twitter. And certainly most people, even those who are on Twitter, are not actively mm -hmm. engaged in the platform in yeah. really you know, um, significant ways. So we certainly, what we being journalists as well as other observers, uh, have to be quite careful, I think, mm -hmm. in how we analyze analyze that data because it's only giving us a, a somewhat skewed snapshot of yeah. these types of impressions and opinions, um, even though, as we know, they can be highly influential because they, particularly when it comes to journalists, they have often you looked at Twitter as a kind of um, assignment editor. You know, mm -hmm. they'll, look, they'll look to popularity online as an indication of stories to be covered and things that we should, that we should be talking about in the mainstream media. And I think it's debatable whether that's mm. actually uh, you know a better approach versus other means of, kind of sourcing public mm. opinion. Um, but you've been talking about some of the cases in in Europe. I wonder, and I think American listeners probably would see some similarities in what you've just described mm. and with with the dynamics here in this country. I wonder if you could talk a bit about some comparisons between Europe and the U.S. Mm. Or also looking more broadly, just around the world, are there what sort of similarities and differences do we tend mm. to see when it comes to uh, disinformation as well as other forms of dark participation. Mm. Uh, well, basically, I'm just an external observer, so I would never dare to analyze American politics. But um, from a superficial and external viewpoint, I think we see, um, you know, this this polarization in the country that everybody's talking about. And I think that is not something that is just the case in the U.S. We see that in many Western countries, in many liberal democracies, there's there's a tendency of more extreme positions becoming uh, relevant in the public debate and more polarization in these countries countries. The difference, I think, between the U.S. and other countries is that you basically have a two-party system here, um, whereas in other countries, like in, in, you know, in Germany or other European countries, you have four or five or six parties, which actually leads to a situation where you always have kind of a coalition um, that makes it a bit different in terms of the, you know, the, um, the way how you would actually spread this information or try to influence the public, because if you have a very close election, it's just one or two percent. This becomes much more relevant. So I think uh, some of the European countries didn't um, experience as much uh, disinformation around elections because it actually didn't make much sense, you know, to trying to influence the public. If you have an election and you have three or four parties and they have all like 
20 to 30 percent or less um, what do you gain if you change one percent or so that doesn't change the coalition at all um, and so I think um, from that point of view I think uh, they're not such an easy target in a way uh, the closer it is um, and um, yeah that the, you know if, if you have one or two percent in the election the closer the two parties are the more it makes sense to actually have these targeted campaigns last minute um, and to target um, the public uh, in a way and, and uh, change the opinion of the public uh, with information that is not factual um, and uh, I think that is is certainly something um, we should be um, aware of, um, and um, there can also be like external groups that try to influence countries. Uh, again, uh, the intent was not like that when we when we started with social media. The intent was much more, you know, like everybody can contribute that to that. Um, but what we uh, underestimated is, you know. First of all, I think there was this misconception of, of the motivation of the normal people to participate. But what we also underestimated is the motivation of other people to participate that claim to be part of that public, but might be external forces or groups that try to influence it with something that is like a you know a black or dark PR campaign in a way. Uh, and we've seen that in, in so many countries. Just another case, maybe from Europe, um, to um, because we wanted to have some examples, and that one was very interesting. So we had one case where basically a TV station was coming to us with a, a really strange case of a website. Uh, basically, it was a Facebook uh, page. Um, with news about migrants and all these news were really negative so it was really all the negative news you could have about people coming from Syria or Eastern Europe to, to Germany and um, that site had like I don't know 150,000 200,000 followers so it was quite big actually quite substantial um, and they said well it looks a bit odd because if you have a look at the followers it's um, people from all over the world and we did a, a detailed analysis with computational methods and so basically I think we had 40 countries there and there were people from Brazil or you know very you know other places in the world or Vietnam that were seemingly super interested in that you know site spreading information about evil migrants in Germany and why was that the case so Obviously, we you know we had a look at these uh, profiles, and obviously these profiles looked a bit like Lego, you know, like these little bricks. They they were consisting of elements that were repeating. So basically, what we thought is you know these are fake accounts, and so um, the television stations took our data and actually tried to find the people that were behind that site, and basically uh, they found them. It was uh, basically the neo Nazis, and and they found this really you know motivated neo Nazi somewhere in East Germany, and uh, who was behind that site, and and interviewed him and he was very open about it and he said you yeah yeah sure we have that and we have 20 more of them and we are very motivated to influence the public with these sites and it was just you know basically two handful or three handful of people um, and but they claimed to be hundred thousands and so what they did is they, they bought these fake accounts or set them up to give the impression that they're a really relevant force in society and I think that's one of these cases that I mean you know that you're kind of pretending to be bigger and we all know from from research and communication studies that there's this uh, spiral of silence effect when people think there's a majority in, in the country that the people who think they're not the majority basically shut up and I think that's a strategy that a lot of these groups have that they try to give you the impression that they're bigger you know than they really are yeah I think you're getting to something that is really central to this debate which is the effects 
of this mm. information, right? Of of what are the implications or, or potential outcomes here? I mean, you talked a bit about or in, in your presentation about the the long history of communication, all the way back to uh, oral cultures in you know prehistoric uh, times, and as long as there's been communication, and as long as there has been some gain to be had through uh, you know strategic forms of um, of deviance and and lying and so forth, that you've had forms of disinformation, right? But obviously, mm. in the current era, we now have the technologies that allow disinformation to be just spread to a degree that, that is unprecedented. And I think there has been, obviously, in the last five years, a lot of interest in, okay, so so what is the sort of impact here? And, and I wonder if you know we could maybe put this in the context of media effects research, which for more than 100 years now, researchers have been debating mm. uh, in our field, like, what is the actual impact of media? Clearly, it has some sort of effect, but the nature of the effect, and under certain types of circumstances and contexts, seems to be more um, hard to pin down exactly. And so, I wonder if maybe you could just give us your thoughts briefly on, you know, when you look at the wide body of research on disinformation and misinformation, are there certain things where maybe we're getting it right with regard to pinning down those effects, hmm. or other areas where perhaps we need to be a little more careful yeah. about assumptions we're making? Yeah, I think um, we we know from from research that um, media have some effects. I think that's the one thing that we should point out. You know, it's not uh, that people are using it and nothing's happening, uh, and that I think that is the one thing we really should be um, you know aware of that science tells us this is not you know this is not a joke you know it has some effects and um, on the other hand sometimes people are overestimating these effects because they think it's, it's massive but if you look at the empirical data we have uh, the effects that we have from media are usually not super big you know it's probably mid-sized or small effects that we have there because um, when people are socialized in a society and they, they reach a certain age they're not likely to change their opinion that quickly. It, it really needs uh, to be massive. Um, you know what you have as an uh, as a as an effect there uh, to to change their opinion, their political opinion, their their worldviews in a way. So um, I think you shouldn't overestimate it, but you also shouldn't underestimate it. Um, if you have disinformation, if the people get a totally different worldview and expect the world to be different from what it actually is on on factual basis, then people will. Re act in a different way this in a way it has nothing to do with their um with their worldview the worldview might be the same but if, if the the representation of the world in the media is a different one they will react in a different way to that and i think that's uh, one of the, the effects that we have nowadays that a lot of people have a uh, you know, on both sides of the political spectrums have very different uh, ideas of how the world actually looks like, um, especially if you just uh, use partisan media, you know, that, that are on your side of the political spectrum. And this is true for both the left and the right. Um, if you're just uh, living in uh, your information bubble in a way, you probably have... Um, the world that you're living in is not the world um, where you you know where your neighbor is living in, and I think that is one of the biggest dangers that you have here that people are not talking to each other anymore and probably live in totally separate worlds in a way, um, and we have to solve that problem. I think that people start this political or societal debate again and actually talk to the oppositional side, and. Um, I think one thing that's there's one misconception here and I think I, I really want to point that out because there's this idea of this this filter bubble out there you know that people that 
information is uh, kind of mythically filtered, why algorithms and people live in a, a totally separate information bubble. And there's a lot of research out there showing that this is not the case. So it's not totally separate. But uh, so, so people get information from other political opinions, but basically they block it in a way. And uh, what I think is much more uh, relevant here is not the information flow, but the, the actual choice of the people. You know, they do it on purpose. They watch Fox News or CNN on purpose and do not watch the other side on purpose. And I think that's the much more problematic thing in a way that at a certain point um, that information might reach you, but you basically block the oppositional information and actually choose just a, a fragment of the, inf the information spectrum that is out there. So. I think that's the one thing that, that I learned from that type of research. Um, the best way to save democracy is actually to broaden that spectrum of information that you get. And you should expose people to the oppositional side. So I think if you're if you're a Democrat, I think I would my advice would be, you know, watch Fox News and, and learn about uh, the, the other side. And even if you hate it, at least you learn something about their position. And the same is true uh, if, if you're a Republican. Watch CNN. If you, if you hate it, it's actually okay. It's okay to hate it, but you learn something about the position of these other people and then probably you can communicate. And if you disagree, it's also okay, but then at least you talk to each other. Yeah, you got to what I was going to ask you to kind of wrap things up, which is just mm. what should people do? Um, mm. yeah, maybe beyond those tips, do you have any other suggestions you, uh, with regard to, uh, obviously, it may look differently from the perspective of educators or researchers, mm. but from for news consumers and citizens and, and people who want to feel like they're making a difference in the situation, mm. which I know for, for many of my students, they talk about how this can feel a bit overwhelming, um, a bit, uh, it's, it's easy to slide into cynicism and, and feel like there's no real hope. But I, I think you, in your talk, you you emphasize that there is a new hope and there's opportunity. And so maybe do you have a, a, a quick thought by way of hope and, and additional sort of suggestions yeah. for people? I mean, if you go back to where we started this discussion, you know, we, we in, in the course of 10 years, we changed from everything's great and, and there was a lot of hope and now to everything is doom and gloom and it's all bad, you know. And I think if we get that message that this can change in 10 years, I think we also you know, have the or should have the, the hope that this can also change in the future. So I think democracy is not lost, you know, and, and this situation is not doom and gloom. And I think if we can restart that uh, societal debate, I think we will we, we can save and renew our democracies in a way. And I think the answer to that is somewhere in the middle. Uh, it's not at the extreme points. I think, as I said before, uh, you know, um, all sides of the democratic spectrum, they ha have to agree that the debate is still possible and that you should talk to each other and that you have to compromise in a way. Um, if you go to the extreme points, and I think that's what a lot of these groups actually want to do, they, they want to push society in into extreme points because then you get to a point where you replace the democratic system with something else. But um, if, you, if you go to these extreme points, it's really lost. But if you say, okay, I want to meet others in the middle somewhere, and I'm open to that, then uh, not everything is lost. And we can contribute here as as uh, users of, of media, but we can also contribute as uh, professionals, as journalists. And I think uh, journalists can also open that debate in a way. They shouldn't uh, just stay in their you know political bubble at one side of that spectrum. Um, and I think that would be a, a good start. 
Well, we could definitely talk about this issue for quite a bit longer, but we do need to wrap things up here. We hope you've enjoyed uh, the discussion uh, today. Do keep an eye out for other materials from Torsten's visit to the University of Oregon, which you can find on our website, demystifying.uoregon.edu, or just Google Demystifying Media Oregon. Uh, in the meantime, it just remains for me to say thank you to Torsten Quant for being here. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, I'm Seth Lewis. Until next time, thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, why not check out another from the University of Oregon School of Journalism and Communication. The Listener's Podcast is a show about the craft and power of listening. We talk with media and communication experts, thought leaders, doers and innovators whose ideas can amplify the quality of our dialogue and interactions. Subscribe to the show anywhere where you find your other favorite podcasts and visit listenerspodcast.com to go deeper with each of our episode's show notes. Thanks for listening. Listener's Podcast.